and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. There are only a few days to go until the local elections on May the 5th. These elections are particularly important because if the public intends to punish Boris Johnson for his lockdown parties, they're the first opportunity for them to do so. And 78% of Britons think he lied about those parties. Then there's the cost of living, currently people's top concern. There have been hints that the government will address it, but hardly anything concrete yet. If the Conservatives reckon, based on these results, that he's an electoral liability, we could see a vote of no confidence. But where are the really interesting places to watch? Joining me is the acknowledged master in this field, Sir John Curtis, Professor at the University of Strathclyde and polling expert. You've probably seen him on election nights. John, welcome to the bunker. Nice to be here, Ross. Local elections are to elect local politicians, and disapproval of Johnson may not mean that you want to kick out your Tory councillors, but do local elections usually act as a referendum on the party in power? Well, certainly the overall performance of the parties in local elections does tend to reflect, although not necessarily exactly mirror, their current performance in the opinion polls. I mean, the one obvious exception to all of this is that the Liberal Democrats undoubtedly always do better in local elections than they do uh, would do at the same time in a contemporary general election. That's been true since the late 1980s. So at recent local elections, the Liberal Democrats have been running in the high teens, whereas their position in the opinion polls, they're doing well if they are getting uh, to 10%. And the Greens also will tend to do somewhat better than they might well do in a Westminster election. But so far as the balance of Conservative and Labour support is concerned, well, put it like this, if the Conservatives are clearly ahead in the polls, then the estimates of the performances of the parties usually have the Conservatives ahead. And equally, if Labour are clearly ahead in the polls, then the performance of the local elections, we usually then uh, uh, reckon that Labour are indeed uh, running ahead. So certainly the national backdrop is reflected in the overall tallies, albeit, of course, of course, in individual places and in individual contests, people might vote for their local Conservative or Labour council, even though they don't normally vote Conservative or Labour, but they like uh, the, the person in question. Or there's a particular issue in a particular local council that causes the party trouble. And indeed, you know, some places... Parties heavily campaign, particularly true of the Democrats, and you suddenly see an improvement. But once you start looking across the piece, across everywhere, then the broad uh, picture does tend to reflect the standing of the parties in the polls. There are elections all over the country, and we'll talk about some of those in a bit more detail later in this podcast. But if you had to pick one area that we should watch to get an idea of the public mood, what would it be? Well, I think the answer to that is that, to be honest, it's probably the wrong question. And the first thing to say is that not all the country is voting on May the 5th. And the fact that not all the country is voting is, in fact, absolutely crucial. It's true that all of Scotland is voting. It's true that all of Wales is voting. And of course, it's true that Northern Ireland is voting in its assembly election. It is not true that all of England is voting. And that is crucial. So all of London is voting, but outside of London, it is for the most part, with a few exceptions, the more urban part of England that is voting. That's crucial point number one. And London itself is now, broadly speaking, a one-party city. The Labour Party control, what is it, 21 of the 32 councils. 
the Conservatives were only defending seven councils in the capital. So there aren't very many places to look at uh, in particular. And we'll come up to what back to what they might be in a moment. Two other things then you have to fundamentally appreciate. Number one is that outside of London, for the most part, only one third of the seats are up for grabs. Of the 114 councils where there are elections, only in 14 of them are all the seats up for grabs. And some of those are for some new unitary councils in uh, in Cumbria and North Yorkshire and Somerset. Now, if only one third of the councils are up for grabs, seats are up for grabs, that severely limits the opportunity for councils to change hands. And indeed, so um, even in these areas, there are slightly fewer Conservative-controlled councils up for election than there are Labour ones. But in many of these places, the Conservatives cannot lose control because uh, even if they were to lose virtually all of the seats this time around, because they've got so many councils already won in 2019 and or 2021. If, If then to that, you then also appreciate the the baseline for most of these elections is 2018, and that is the year of Jeremy Corbyn's best performance in local elections. And when Conservative and Labour were basically neck and neck with each other, then actually, if Boris Johnson had to pick a set of elections uh, that he had to defend, then this is probably a set he would have happily accepted. In other words, the Tory shires are for the most part not voting. It is Labour England that is voting. That limits the extent to which uh, there can be headline losses of control. And uh, and given that at the moment, on average, Labour is six points ahead in the polls. So we'll get about if that is reflected in what happens, uh, given that in 2018, the two parties were roughly neck and neck, we're looking at about a 3% swing. I mean, nothing dramatic. It will produce some Tory losses. But once you start looking for councils, the, the Conservatives that might lose, that, as it were, that might tell a story of Boris in trouble, well, there's Wandsworth. Wandsworth is undoubtedly vulnerable, and Wandsworth is undoubtedly iconic, well beyond its immediate sophological meaning, because Wandsworth has been Conservative since 1978. It's been held in the past against the tide, sometimes, as last time, even though the Conservatives don't didn't get most votes, but they still managed to get uh, most seats. It particularly became iconic in 1990, when the council started to pursue its strategy of having a very low council tax, which it still has. Wandsworth has actually reduced its council tax this year. So it's as it were, it's a Thatcherite low tax council, which uh, in 1990 was held against the tide. Indeed, there was a swing to the Conservatives at a time when Margaret Thatcher was thought to be in electoral trouble. And Ken Baker, the then Conservative chairman, very very cleverly averted people's eyes away from the broad message of the local elections, which was the Conservatives were in trouble, to Wandsworth together with Westminster, where there was a swing to the Conservatives and saying, you know, this goes to prove that actually we're doing okay. So losing Wandsworth this time around, which even on a 3% swing with new boundaries in place, certainly the Conservatives look vulnerable could well happen. And if that happens, that's where Sakir Starmer will go on the Friday afternoon to um, say, you know, we are making a major advance. 
But beyond that, well, Barnet, yeah. Labour shouldn't have lost, shouldn't have failed to win Barnet in 2018, but that's where the anti-Semitism row surrounding Jeremy Corbyn had most impact because it's the most Jewish part of the country. Uh, Labour should pick that up. After that, well, on a very good day, maybe Westminster, but probably not on a 3% swing. And the other councils in London are safe. Outside of London, where do you look? Well, I can find you Southampton. Southampton, you know, good, classic, uh, marginal uh, city in the south of England. will be a good place for Labour to trumpet if they uh, take control away for the Conservatives. And that may well happen on a 3% swing. I can find you one Red Wall Council that might change hands. It's Newcastle under Lyme, where exceptionally there happens to be a whole council election and where the Conservatives are in control, but actually only because independents defected to the Conservatives last autumn. So the headline will look will look great. But beyond that, and most of the Red Wall places, either there aren't enough, there aren't enough uh, 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 seats for the Tories to, uh, to lose this time around, or the Red Wall Council is, the council's already in Labour control. So the answer to you, Ross, is there may not be very much to look at in terms of individual places that tell a story, and that indeed, if um, Boris Johnson and those around him have their act together, the spin that will come will be, look, we've not lost that much. We've lost very few councils. We're not in trouble. The truth is there will be other ways to look at these elections. It will be, for example, possible in most of the places outside of London, indeed, even in London. In London, you can be able to compare the results with what happened in the GLA election last year. And outside of London, most of the places that have elections this year also have elections last year. So you can look at the votes and you can look to say, well, how much are the Conservatives done since last year? And that's probably where the story will be. But it's a story you need to know where to look for. It's not a story that will emerge from the headlines of uh, seat gains and losses, and certainly not likely, very likely in terms of Conservative uh, council losses, or put it slightly differently, if the Conservatives lose more than a handful of councils, then it really will be a story. Do you expect the Lib Dems to make any gains? Because they're not polling well on the national level, but of course they had that remarkable by-election result in North Shropshire last year. They did. I mean, the, the, the Lib Dems' principal challenge is to hang on to what they've got. They've got the three councils in the southwest of London, uh, one of which is Ed Davies uh, uh, Council. So they've got Kingston, Richmond and Sutton. And Sutton is the more difficult one because that unusually for London is a Brexit voting area. And of course, they they, they no longer uh, have either the Carshorton or the Sutton constituency. They have the misfortune because of boundary changes. They have to defend St Albans, which is Daisy Cooper's constituency. They also have the misfortune to have to defend South Cambridgeshire, where you know the Tory council defected to Liberal Democrats. There are one or two other uh, councils like Eastleigh, where there is a one-third election. So the, the Liberal Democrats' principal job is to hang on to what they've got. And in some of those uh, places, you know, they're, they're defending a, a, a local bastion. Outside of that, there's a lot of chatter about Somerset, which they have controlled in the past. But as you say, that given their position in the polls, I mean, you need to know what's going on in the ground there. I mean, 
Uh, and Somerset, again, it's a, it's a new unitary election for a council that takes place next year. So again, it's unusual. Maybe, maybe the Liberal Democrats will do well enough to deny the Conservatives' control requires quite a big swing for the, the for the Democrats themselves to take control. But that might be their biggest thing. But beyond that, to be honest, it's difficult to find an obvious council where the Liberal Democrats are breathing down somebody's neck such that they might make a headline grabbing gain. So again, you know, I mean, they might make some progress. They are a bit higher in the opinion polls now than they were last year. Uh, maybe they'll make a bit of progress, but it's probably more likely going to be a case of, you know, seat gains here and there rather than, you know, uh, some substantial increase in Liberal Council, Liberal Democrat controlled councils. And the thing they have to watch is they don't lose somewhere along the way. The last time Wales voted in these elections in 2017, the Conservatives did fairly well, didn't they? Because Theresa May was at the height of her popularity. So is that somewhere where we might see substantial Labour gains? Yes, well, you're right. Both in Wales and in Scotland, the baseline is 2017 rather than 2018. And that is a politically a different world. It was indeed the local elections took place in between Theresa May uh, calling the election just after Easter and the election being held in June. Um, actually, in the local elections, the Conservatives didn't do as well in general as the polls were suggesting they were going to do. And that was the first sign that maybe the 2017 general election wasn't necessarily going to deliver quite in the way that Theresa May was hoping. But yes, in Wales, the Conservative vote advanced substantially. They got about 18% of the vote, if I remember rightly. They overtook Plaid. I think they're about six points up, and by uh, the standards in Wales, that was a good result. And they did gain control of Monmouth Council. But it's only Monmouth Council they control, and indeed Monmouth looks vulnerable as a result, and that could be another uh, a, a conservative loss. But a uh, thing to realise about Wales is that, you know, independents do do particularly well. They can get about 20% of the vote. Um, and once you get outside of Cardiff, the number of wards which you find that Labour, Conservative, Liberal Democrat and Plaid are all fighting fairly rapidly begin to get uh, thin on the ground. So, but that said, you know, Labour did have some disappointment. I mean, Blind Eye Gwent, for example, which the independents uh, you know, uh, control, you know, but it's a place where Labour has had its local difficulties before, you know, Labour might pick up. So, yes, one or two Labour gains gains and controls of councils in Wales, uh, you know, may well be on the cards given the disappointing result that Labour recorded in 2017. But Wales is not somewhere that partisan politics dominates to the same extent that it does, for example, in most of England. briefly about Scotland. That is using a different voting system from the rest of the country, which is interesting in itself. And it, it will it reveal a bit more about people's feelings about the SNP and Labour and independence? <laughs> maybe, maybe not is the answer to that question. Scotland has a single, used a single transfer for proportional representation, as a result of which it is very, very difficult for anybody to gain control of any council. And at the moment, the only uh, three councils that have um, a party, quote unquote, in control are Orkney, Shetland, and uh, Nahalian Anyar, the Western Isles, 
all of which independents are in control of. Outside of that, everywhere is a coalition or a minority administration. And that will remain the place afterwards. So there isn't a Conservative-controlled council in Scotland for the Conservatives to lose. But there is a battle for the Conservatives in Scotland. The Conservatives advanced even more strongly in Scotland than they did in Wales in 2017. They got 25% of the first preference vote, um, which was by far and away their best performance in any uh, election in Scotland since 1999. And it presaged the fact that whatever disappointments occurred elsewhere, the Conservatives in the 2017 general election got 28, 29% of the vote. And, you know, that remains still their high tide watermark. So the Conservatives, therefore, these were always going to be difficult to serve local elections because they're defending that very good performance. As it happens, since late autumn, and this is part of the Partygate story, the Conservatives have been running third in the opinion polls in Scotland, second to Labour. And since 2016, and this included the 2017 local elections, the Conservatives have been running second consistently. So the question, the, probably the biggest question about the local elections in Scotland is not, you know, what's the level of support for unionism versus, versus independence, but what is happening to the unionist vote within Scotland? Is it the case that Labour Party are going to overtake the Conservatives or more accurately, are the Conservatives going to fall behind Labour or not? That is what the opinion polls are suggesting. And, you know, again, the result of local elections don't exactly mirror um, the position of parties in the polls because the independents gain do get about 10% of the vote and local factors do matter. But that where the, is where the real race seems to be. There is a possibility that Labour will come second, which means the political fragmentation of unionism in Scotland will become even worse and the Conservatives will no longer be able simply be unchallenged as the principal political voice of unionism in Scotland and Labour's reluctance to get involved in any joint unionist campaign with the Conservatives, which is now very, very strong and is one of the problems facing unionism in any referendum campaign, will just simply be reinforced. The more difficult question is just how well would the SNP do? The SNP probably did disappointingly in 2017. They got a third of the vote and they were certainly first. But actually, that third of the vote was no more than what they got in 2012. Now, in between 2012 and 2017, of course, there was the 2014 independence referendum, in the wake of which the SNP won virtually every Westminster seat in 2015, and again, uh, got re-elected in 2016, albeit uh, without an overall majority. However, of course, the disappointing result in 2017 in the local elections of no advance, seemingly disappointing, was then followed in the general election by the SNP down to 36-37% compared with the 50% of 2017, a position from which, however, they have subsequently recovered and they're, they're, they're running at around uh, 45% north of the border. So we might therefore anticipate that the SNP might make something of an advance, but we have to wait and see, given what happened in, in 2017. And I'm not certainly sure that it's going to be a substantial advance. And one of the things that we're uncertain about is just how well their partners now in government, the Greens, will do. To what extent will they take first preference votes that would otherwise go 
to the SNP. That's an uncertainty. Although then the other thing you have to bear in mind, because it's a transferable vote system, it's not just the first preferences that matter, it's also the transfers that matter. To what extent is the fact that the SNP and the Greens are in government mean that to an even greater extent in 2017, and it was more so in 2017 and 2012, do Green voters give their lower transfers to the SNP and vice versa? So therefore, um, it, in the end, the nationalist bloc um, ends up maximizing its support. But does the political fragmentation of the unionist movement mean that the coordination on the unionist side isn't as great or not? That's one of the great uncertainties. If that is right, probably some SNP gains. They might gain control of Dundee. The Conservatives falling back. If that happens, the spin from the SNP will be Scotland rebuffs Boris and further swing towards independence. The first claim will not be new and the second will probably be specious because unless the SNP and the Greens get over 50% of the first preference vote, which is unlikely, and it's equally unlikely that all the unionist parties between them will get over 50% of the vote. Although most voters in Scotland will indeed vote on, on the constitutional line, that's now become a fundamental fault line. Given support for independence, um, etc., probably neither bloc will get over that 50% mark, and that therefore probably in the end, the support for the two groups will be relatively uh, even Stevens and it will simply tell us what we already know, which is that, um, you know, the constitutional question divides Scotland pretty much down the middle. But it's the SNP that will probably look in, in, in hard to fettle in the wake of these elections. And concluding our rapid tour of the UK, Northern Ireland, <laughs> obviously different parties, completely different arrangements. Do you expect Sinn Féin to become the biggest party in the Assembly? There is a very wide spread expectation that Sinn Féin will become the largest party, not because Sinn Féin are expected to advance. They got 27% of the vote last time, only actually just behind the DUP. They may well get something, they're expected to get something similar again, but because of the fragmentation of the unionist vote. The DUP in the opinion polls is running at about 20%. It's losing ground, not so much to the UUP, or again, holding relatively steady. They're losing ground one... At one end of the spectrum to the traditional unionist party, which are running at about 7-8%, compared with 2% in 2017, which again is when the last election was held. So they're losing votes to the harder unionists, who basically certainly think the Northern Ireland Protocol should be scrapped, and frankly, you know, wouldn't be entirely unhappy if the Good Friday Agreement were to go with it, but also losing votes in the centre to the Northern Ireland Alliance and the Greens, uh, the non-aligned parties, uh, the alliance running at about 16% in the polls, are our favourite to come third. And the problem facing the unionist politicians in, in, in Northern Ireland is that nationalists are united. Nationalists are a, united in thinking that Brexit was a bad idea and they voted Remain in the first place. And B, therefore, as a result, they think the Northern Ireland Protocol, which keeps Northern Ireland within the EU single market, is a good idea. Yes, some of them will say that maybe it needs a few tweaks, but they think it's about tweaks, it's not about the principle. The problem on the unionist side is that, yes, a majority of unionists don't like the Northern Ireland Protocol, a majority of unionists voted to uh, leave, but a minority voted to remain, a not inconsiderable minority voted to remain, particularly Ulster Unionist supporters, and moderate unionists at least, or those who say they are slightly unionist, 
only a minority of them think the Northern Ireland Protocol should go. And quite a lot of them say, yeah, it needs fixing. But if it's, if it's fixed, it's okay. So what we're looking at is a united nationalist movement that's likely to retain its support by Sinn Féin and the SDLP. The unionist vote, however, is fragmented. But then because the, part of the fragmentation of the unionist vote is towards the Northern Ireland Alliance, probably the unionist bloc will still be larger than the nationalist bloc. But shall we say these two blocks keep on getting, the gap between these two blocks keep on getting narrower. And that may also be another part of the Northern Ireland story. And that, as it were, Although Sinn Féin becoming the largest party in some sense is 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 more symbolic and is more a commentary on the DUP, it, this you know will certainly be an indication, a further indication of the way in which the unionist hegemony in Northern Ireland traditionally again seems to be uh, to a significant degree eroded, not least because of internal disagreements within the unionist community itself. John, thanks so much for those insights. What's the timetable of the night? When will the first results come in? Is it going to be Sunderland? Because it's usually Sunderland in general elections, oh, isn't it? No. Yeah, well, so, yeah, Sunderland counts quickly for local elections as well as uh, elsewhere. Uh, more broadly, about a half of the English councils are counting overnight. So by about five or six in the morning, we should have a pretty good idea of what the story is from England, including some of the councils in London. Uh, Scotland... Uh, I think some of Wales is counting overnight, but a lot of it will count the following day. Scotland counts the following day, but it's an electronic council. Although it's SDV, it will be relatively quick. Northern Ireland is also SDV, but it counts by hand, so it will be slower. But the first preference votes will be coming out on uh, Friday afternoon, and they will begin to give us a pretty good idea as to whether or not Sinn Féin are going to come first in the first preference vote. Although the detailed picture relying on the transfers, and the transfers could make some difference, may not be evident until the early hours on Saturday morning. And where will we find you on election night? Sitting in a BBC studio in London. (laughs) John, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, Ross. There's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>